Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Kellen and Alex Show, recorded September 12, 2019, the first one of the semester. In this edition of the podcast, we get into the ecumenical movement, get in a little bit into gun control. This is our first one of the semester, first one from the Radio Lab at Francis University. Welcome to the podcast. WFRSCC, Kellen Lake, Alex Denley, Pamela Ding Dong, Viva Cristo Rey. We are here for our first podcast of the year, and I am so stoked. This is going to be amazing. We got some great topics tonight. Alex, anything you want to say before we dive right in? Viva Cristo Rey. Let's do it. Alex and Kellen podcast, 6 to 8 p.m. every Thursday evening. Mark it on your calendars. Tune in. Put it in your phone. Save it on reminders. It's here. All right. Let's get right into it. So our first topic, we're going to go over a little bit of the Veritas Society, which Alex is the president of this semester because Clem, the previous uh, president, is in Austria right now studying. So Alex has decided to take over. Alex, take it away. What is the statement of Veritas Society? The Veritas Society. It exists to promote intellectual culture on campus. Uh, It was a project uh, Clement and I uh, began. This was spring of, let's see, 2017. So, um, yeah, we were really glad to start it. Uh, this will be our fourth semester. And the whole mission of the club is just to promote intellectual culture and discussion. Uh, so if, you've, if you're on campus or you've heard of the Dumb Ox debates, uh, that's kind of our mainstay events. Uh, they're different than most debates because when people hear about debates, they think two experts going head to head. Um, and usually no one comes to common agreement and everyone kind of leaves with a bad feeling in their mouth. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just kind of in bad taste, you know, because the experts go up there, they don't agree with each other. They, you know, slam each other with different speeches. That's not this. Uh, the dumb ox debates are, uh, they're meant to be, uh, they're student parliamentary debates. So meaning anyone can uh, talk at the debates. We have kind of our main presenters to get us kicked off. Uh, but then uh, the floor is open to anyone in the house to give a speech. Uh, so it's usually a lot of fun. We've done quite a variety of different topics. Um, and these are debates on which reasonable Catholics can actually disagree on. So we've done everything from uh, this house believes that homeschooling is the best form of education for Catholics to uh, this house believes that death penalty should be abolished in the United States to uh, this house believes that praise and worship music does not belong in the liturgy to that all sorts fun. of stuff. <laughs> it's all sorts of stuff. So it's it's uh, it's quickly become a, a mainstay of campus. Uh, we're really excited. We're entering in. Yeah, this is our fourth semester, and we already got three debates planned. Uh, we don't have topics yet. We're we're looking looking into uh, figuring out what what we want to do for that. But uh, yeah, half of our contingent is in uh, in Austria right now. Actually, that's right. that was a big challenge too. Coming up with like half the guys are in Austria, so that's big responsibility on on all of us. I'm a part of the Veritas Society, also just trying to be a little bit, a little bit humble here, but. Uh, yeah, I'm Kellen also- is our head of our uh, getting our video and media up, and uh, of course we're doing the podcast, which is pretty epic. Doing, doing, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get a promo video out. You can uh, find us online as well on uh, Facebook Veritas Society FUS. Uh, that's usually pretty active. We have a website as well, uh, Veritas. So it's V E R I T A S dash Society uh, dot com. You can find out about us, what we do on campus. Yeah, so we're really excited about this semester. So, Alex, tell me, do we have a topic for the up, next upcoming debate, or are we still looking at that? So I talked to Clem, what he was thinking with it. Uh, Clement's my uh, is the president of the society. I'm vice president. And uh, we were thinking of doing gun control. 
which I, I don't know if we would want to go forward with it. Um, Good idea. I mean, there's a lot of Republicans here, so. Yeah, exactly. I was wondering how one-sided it'd be, because um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people like their guns, uh, as I do. And, uh, and so the debate would probably be, this House believes that, um, that assault weapons, or basically for an assault weapon ban. Um, so that would include AR-15s and rifles and these type of things. Although I'm wondering who would argue for that, you know. Uh, Clemens British, so they don't have their guns. So I'm sure he's, <laughs> oh, I'm sure he's really excited he about would take debating a that. Crazy stance on that one. Yeah, but I don't know as much because people like to make this kind of, you know, the Democrats like to make a one on one, one to one. Okay, we take away guns, it reduces stuff, or reduces gun violence, and because everyone has this like one question in their mind, which is. What do we do about these mass shootings? You know, I believe there was another one in Texas, not even too there long was, ago. There was, like a couple yeah. days ago. I, I don't know exactly. I'm not exactly sure, but I believe a good amount of people were killed. I don't know if it was on a campus or it was just a shooting. I'm, I'm not exactly. I don't remember, but I I do think that there were a good amount of people It was killed. in like a small town, I think, in, in Texas. Yeah. 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 And, um, and, you know, over the summer, we also had the El Paso shooting right. at a Walmart. It's just at a, at a Walmart, yeah. you know, and Texas going through a rough time right now. Yeah. They've had these, these two mass shootings and everyone in the world is like, oh, America, you guys are just so nuts. You have all these mass shootings and stuff. And, you know, we, we, uh, we're very concerned about it, but, uh, taking away guns, is that going to be a solution? You know, it just, a lot of people fail to realize just America itself. Like America is an enormous country with a lot of people and very, very diverse crowd of people. And um, it's it's become kind of a sad reality of our of our modern times. Obviously, we should make continued laws if it's um, it does depend on the law. But people do agree, you know, we shouldn't give high powered rifles to people who are mentally ill, although it's difficult because it's like, how do you define mentally ill? How do Which you is determine? like because that could be the first step to government just saying, well, we're all mentally ill ultimately, and uh, we're just going to take all your guns, you know, or you shouldn't be able to have this. Um, you know, and on the libertarian side of, of the perspective, it's like, yeah, we should be able to have whatever guns. And, uh, you know, I think one one shooting that was kind of really, uh, well, I, don't, I don't, wouldn't call it revealing, but if you look at the Las Vegas shooting, Right. If you really follow that, that the man, I forget his name, but he spent multiple trips coming to Las Vegas, bringing guns to a hotel in Mandalay Bay and um, and was planning ahead of time to massacre those people. And he did everything exactly as he planned and then carried it out. And it's just it's so sad and, and so demonic that he was you know, carried this out, but how do you stop that? I mean, he spent all this time thinking about it and planning it and getting everything together. And, um, yeah, it's just really sad. Well, they would say, okay, well, we don't have assault rifles and, you know, maybe there's an argument to be had there. He had, he had a, I don't know if you know this, he had a bump stock rifle. Have you heard of those? I, I believe I heard of it, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. So I haven't fired one, but I, I knew about him quite before the Las Vegas shooting. And I was like, how is this stuff illegal? Well, or sorry, how is this stuff legal? Because bump stocks are, are legal. So as you know, automatic weapons, uh, if they're made, I believe it's past 1970, you're not allowed to, to buy them or you're not allowed to produce them. No one's allowed to produ right. produce them for consumers. Okay. So if that's why you can buy automatic weapons pre-1970. Um, not in every state though, because I think some states don't. But in Nevada, 
you can you can go. That's why they have. I don't know if you've heard of Shot Show. Yep. Yeah, Shot Show in in Vegas. Uh, a lot of guns there, <laughs> and you can shoot automatics and stuff. Anyways, bump stocks. So the automatics obviously are illegal past 1970. Okay, bump stocks though. So if you know what an automatic gun does, you pull the trigger completely down and it continues to fire, right? The the bullet continues to go up from the magazine and it's continually a, a rate of fire as fast as possible. So the bump stock tries to do exactly that without being an officially automatic gun. Right. It's it's the magazine, right? That it's a, a magazine that makes it pretty much automatic. Not the magazine, but the stock is the what stock. does it. Okay, Yeah, yeah. So it. you have on the gun, you have the trigger. And then, of course, you have the magazine and you have the receiver. And the receiver is like what receives the bullet and then shoots it. You it know, basically it, it, makes... Where, the, where the, uh, the, the hammerhead is, where it hits the pin and explodes it. And it basically makes it a semi-automatic and a matic. An automatic. automatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really... So you can look it up online. Look it up on YouTube. Uh, bump stock. Uh, I think one of the, the cool videos, I think is the guy's name is Jerry Riggs Everything or something like that, but he did a video on it. And uh, so basically what happens as the, the stock is is like a collapsible, if you, so you shoot and it kind of collapses in and then it pushes back. And when it does that, it loads another one right into the chamber. And you don't even have to like remove your finger from the trigger. So basically it removes, you shoot the gun, the recoil pushes the gun inwards towards you. And then it pushes it back into place. And when it does that, it puts another bullet immediately back in and then fires it. So it technically, according to our laws, gets around the automatic rifle um, specifications because it's not the receiver and it's not the receiver part of the gun that is actually doing the, right. the automatic yeah. feeding. What it is, the stock is doing the feeding. So because of that, it's not technically technically illegal and i knew about that beforehand i was like this is really bad like this shouldn't be you know this should this is basically making it automatic. an automatic so i mean if we as a society and we as a country don't want automatic guns you should be okay, that bomb stock should be be gone and you should say if any stock is collapsible in that way and then adds bullets okay so las vegas shooting happens and i remember seeing the the videos that were coming out of there and it was it sounded automatic fire like it sounded like an automatic rate of of fire coming out of the hotel towards the people, just terrific, horrific, uh, and um, and I was like, this is so weird. That's either an automatic gun or this is a bump stock. Ended up, it was all bump stocks. So Jeez. he was using bump stocks, and he had multiple. I don't even know. You can you can look at pictures. He had multiple uh, ARs and, and different guns that he just had modified know. all to have bump stocks, and so it was basically an automatic rate of fire. I believe in Vegas, you can also have 30 round mags. So in California, I believe the limit's 11 uh, for an AR-15. That's where I'm from. That's where you're from. Um, I don't know what it is for Ohio and these other places. So no, it's it's a uh, it's a real difficult issue. It's a real difficult issue. And um, But yeah, bump stocks and these other things, I, I don't think those should be legal. But but there's all these like intermediary things where you can kind of just tweak it just a little right. bit. You get yep. just there's around all the, the little law. tweaking things that you can yeah. do. A lot of little provisions, everything that you think that could push it over the limit, you know, find a way in and out. But, you know, it is what it is in the end. It's an, pretty much an automatic rifle, automatic gun. That's right. You no. Know? So it's the question is, OK, yeah, it's technically under the categorization of a semi-automatic but it's really an automatic with the with the um, bump stock. Bump stock. 
You know, it's funny. I was, well, it's not really funny, but I was watching a the a Joe Rogan podcast on the Joe Rogan experience. For for those of you that don't know, Joe Rogan is absolutely amazing. I love Joe Rogan. Um, but he talks a lot about, not just because he's a UFC commentator, UFC fight, fight commentator. And I was listening to one of his podcasts with Chael Sonnen, who Chael Sonnen is a retired UFC fighter. And they got to a point where they were talking about the gun problems in America. Now, there are more guns in America than there are people. That's just a fact. We know it, right? So think about that. There's more than 330 million guns in the entire United States. Okay? So think about this for a second. If we're going to talk about mental illness, then we need to really talk about it in a serious manner. Don't, if a shooting like that, of that magnitude happens in a big area like Las Vegas, the gun is not the problem. In a lot, in most of the sense, the gun is not the problem. It's the person who has the gun. Why don't we, why are we addressing this problem as a gun problem instead of a mental illness problem? That's what it is. It's mental illness. It's not the gun. It's the person who is holding the gun. And I was listening to Joe Rogan. I was just amazed because he's brilliant. And when he, what he's talking about him and Chael Sonnen. And I was just listening to it. And this is just so true. All of it comes together. It makes sense. It's meant, it's a mental illness problem in America. This, uh, I don't remember exactly where, but it was another shooting. The guy had multiple reports of being mentally ill had guns. I think he even told the FBI and they didn't even lock him up. Mm. Goes in, kills like 30 people. Now for you to blame the FBI, that's fair. That's a fair argument because the FBI should have locked him up. If you have a man that, that, that that's, if you have a man that's that crazy and then he actually does go kill like 30 people, then we have a real problem because not only do we have a problem of mental illness, we have a problem of our, our system of government and in, in, in the jails and, and prison locking people up, the FBI. So I was listening to it and I was thinking this just, it all makes sense. It, it has to be a mental illness problem because it, it's not the gun, although the gun does the damage in the literal sense, but the person does the, does the, you know, pulls the trigger. So I was just amazed and, and just thinking about it. And we really have to start addressing this as a, a problem of, of people who are mentally sick in their minds. Um, and there's a lot of that today and we need to really fix that. So with that in mind, let's move to our next topic, which is, go ahead, Alex, take it away. The Pan-Amazonian Synod. Uh, so we're moving into to more... Uh, church things. Uh, actually, I had one more comment maybe yeah. on the gun control yeah, stuff before, yeah. we, before we get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, another very important topic. But yeah, with what you were saying with mental illness, it's um, so, I mean, kind of two comments with that. I mean, we already see from the bump stock situation, gun owners are going to figure out a way <laughs> to get around it or people who are looking to, to do harm. They're going to find, so let's say you do an assault weapons ban. Um, there's going to be, I've seen, you can modify certain handguns to basically be almost completely similar to a rifle. You can set it up with a, a kind of pseudo stock. You can do different things. Um, 
so and and according to the Second Amendment, uh, you know, without a a full disarming of the civilians, which would seriously change the nature of America. Well, it would America, the Constitution. It would change the you would need an amendment. Right. Right. Which we haven't done in a long time. Which will never uh, happen. Well, God forbid, you know. God forbid. I mean <laughs> um amendments are something we just haven't done in a long time. It, it would be nice to see if we could try amendments again. Not for this particularly. In, but like, like if we had to make an amendment. You know what I mean? It's like that thing that's like off to the side in the Constitution, because you need two thirds of the states to ratify it, which would be weird. But anyways, besides the point, it's they, they would find ways to modify handguns as well. Let's say if you ban assault rifles and all that stuff. And and also, what are you going to, how is that effectively going to be put in place? Because like you were saying, there's millions of guns out there. Are you going to say, okay, well, effective this state, you can't produce or sell them. Do you? That's going to drive the sale of ARs like through the roof, like instantly. Yep. And then after that, there'll be a kind of off the off the grid. But, I mean, that amount of guns isn't going to make a change within 20-something years. So, unless it's confiscation, the assault weapons ban is like, it's so, how are you going to do it? Like, how does that actually look? Which is the reason why it always fails in, it fails in the House, it fails in the Senate. Because it's, okay, if you're if you're a lawmaker, what are you going to do? sounds good, but. Yeah, exactly. You're thinking, oh, we have to respond to these mass shootings. And it's like, okay, well, like you were saying, it's a mental illness problem. We have 330 million people. Um, how is that actually going to look? What are you going to do? Confiscate the guns? Are you going to say you can't sell them after this date and you can't buy them after this date? Okay, well, that still leaves AR ARs in the hands of like almost, you know, everyone who wants them because they already have them. Because uh, it's really funny. There was a, uh, a guy who was in uh, a business person I know who was in, um, he's in for like doomsday prepping. Uh, that's his website is what he sells doomsday, doomsday prep stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so he sells like ammo cans and like all this other type of stuff. And he was saying that, uh, during the election cycle, when everyone was like, Hillary's going to win and all this stuff, his website was like booming, man. Like people were <laughs> buying stuff. They were buying sandbags. That's they were one buying, way to like, do it. <laughs> exactly. It's one way to do it. His business is booming. And then Trump get ele- got elected. His sales dropped by half. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Oh, and, geez. uh, but anyways, it's the same with the, the gun sales, too. Like, the election cycle starts getting going, and people are like, oh, my goodness, a Democrat pre- president. They're going to start doing gun take control away stuff. Take away everything. And then they just buy a bunch of guns. So um, America's in this position, like you said. We have, like, all of these guns. And uh, what are you going to do about, the, you know, assault weapons ban? Okay, well, what does that actually look like? You're going to confiscate guns? Okay, you're not going to confiscate guns. You're going to say well, it's illegal past this date. Okay, well, that's only going to change things within, like, 20 or 30 years and maybe not even probably not even substantially because you got handguns the the vast majority of deaths in america are by handguns not by assault rifles right like something like 90 to 10 or or yeah it's crazy it's like 95 (laughs) to 5 it's it's some insane number not even yeah not even comparable that's the reason why you can get a ar right when you turn 18 and you can't get a a glock until you're 21 right or 1911 or something like that well it makes sense right because nobody's going to go out in the street carrying a huge rifle and shoot somebody people's going to have a a small handgun unless you're looking to do something like el paso yeah which is right which is only which is also very rare in terms of i mean it's so known now because of media and everything else but the second point as you were saying with mental health uh yeah we're in a we're in a weird place I, i think a lot of people are very isolated in society and uh if you look at 
the progression of people towards a kind of state like that, they usually have some really messed up stuff going on in their life. And a lot of them are really isolated. Um, let's say they got a divorce. I think the, the, uh, yeah, the Las Vegas shooter got a divorce, I think two or three years before that. And he had moved to Nevada from, I believe he was in Southern California. He was in San Bernardino or something like that. Um, but just went down this complete isolation, was just gambling all the time and then decided to do this. And, um, you know, I haven't kept up with the story recently, but it's very, there's very dark, there's a lot of darkness there. And, um, we still don't have a lot of things set up to really, to really receive that. And I mean, ultimately too, uh, the role that the loss of belief in religion plays as well and the loss of belief in God, because, um, you know, the role that the church played in Christendom and Christian civilization throughout the ages was to get people out of that type of isolation that was leading them kind of down this like rabbit hole of, of, of a path as this Las Vegas shooter and, and others. And the common belief in God and uh, this, this more social unity that the church provided, I mean, we're so, in America, we have so many different like smaller and smaller fragments. And I mean, the unity we feel locally is, is, is very minuscule. You know, maybe you have your community at your school, which isn't that great, or maybe your community at your workplace or whatever else, but if you don't have like the church or something else and you don't believe in God, there's isolation quickly creeps in. And it's not just, mental illness isn't always just an aberration where you have like all these, you know, True. Uh, it's not just a chemical imbalance. Sometimes it, a lot of it too is like, I have no faith. I don't have any family that loves me. I have no one around me that loves me. I have no community. All these factors, all these start. things just spiral and spiral out of control. And, you know, to say we're going to solve it by an assault weapon span is just foolish. And to say that we're going to, well, it never works. Yeah. It doesn't work. They've no, tried it, it before. Work. It doesn't work. And to say we're going to solve it by, you know, letting everyone keep their weapons and then just saying, well, we'll all send them to like psychiatric wards or something like that. Like that's not going to work either. It's, we really have to look at ourselves and say, how are we producing people that get this isolated and this insane and no one realizes it? Like, are we going to rely on the FBI to like find their social media accounts and stuff? Because what are they going to do? Is the FBI going to like see a few social media posts where somebody's like saying crazy stuff and then just arrest them out of the blue? Um, like that, uh, that stupid movie I really hate, uh, but I saw it. Uh, what was it called? The uh, Minority Report. You know that one? But I they like, seen that. Yeah, it's really silly. But it's basically like they catch criminals before they do crimes because of time travel and all this stuff. What like it's, it's super silly, you know. Um, but there's no way. We, we, we have to take a look at ourselves and say, how are we ending up with these people that are isolated, mentally ill, have no community, have no way of like reaching out, and they get to this place? That's like the primary issue. And then another issue with that is like we look at ourselves and say, okay, um, bump stocks, let's get them out or something like that, you know, and then that's the conversation. But the primary conversation is the mental health one. Yeah. So true. hundred percent. And that, that's a problem that we really, really need to fix. And I honestly really don't know how you fix it because there's always going to be mentally ill people, but they're always, there's always the point of trying to make progress and improvement. So that's very important and we'll be keeping in touch with that for sure. All right, so second topic, Alex, very important, is the Amazon um, 
trials right now. Not really trials, but they're they're the Senate. Senate, right? So it's been kind of on the Catholic watch for a, a while. Um, so in 2017, Pope Francis announced that he wanted to, uh, this is a quote, to identify new paths for the evangelization of God's people in the Amazon region. Um, and this is, uh, accordingly, the Amazon Basin, it's got 6 million kilo- square kilometers of, of land with a population of 2.8 million, uh, divided among 400 different tribes that all have their local languages. And uh, in the countries of Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, Peru, Venezuela, and other countries. Central and South America. Which most of their, those countries are Roman Catholic. And so, but there's still a great number of people that are um, that are still tribal. And so this the, the idea of the Synod when it was originally called was to how do we how do we bring the church to them and convert them? Although the language has been very ambiguous and it's caused a lot of people to wonder what really is the motives for this because um, the the Synod is in some ways there there's a lot of like, in the in the actual working document and in other documents that have come out around it, it seems as though they're using this uh, Amazon Synod as a way to make big changes in the universal church by applying it to the Amazon. It's something that's been given the name of synodality, where they call a synod for a particular region and then use that region as like a testing ground and then apply it to the universal church. Now, two issues that are particularly pertinent that they are from their own documents, preparatory documents looking at is the possibility of women diaconate and the possibility of married clergy. Wow. And um, that's a big problem. Yes. Um, this is from the Wikipedia page, actually. They do a good job of summarizing it. A working document released in June 2018 identified the key themes in the Synod as the role of the women in the church and the rights and traditions of indigenous people and the need to provide greater access to the Eucharist. Um, So this is called the Instrumentum Laboris. It was the working document for what the the Synod was eventually going to be discussing. The Synod is going to be held in Rome uh, this from October 6th to October 27th this year. So the preparatory document was released, and in it there was a lot of uh, it didn't explicitly come out and say we want married clergy, but it said basically to the effect of like we're open to the idea and it may be discussed and the idea that women may be ordained to the diaconate to fit the um, to fit the needs of the Amazon. Yeah. Now, will there be any political figures from Central and South American countries that will be at the meeting in Rome or is it just the authority of of the pope and his is it the pope that's that'll be there and discuss everything right so will there be any figures from those countries that will be there is there any influence from those countries that will be at that meeting as far as political ones i'm not sure uh there might be a few invited but it's mainly the bishops from those countries they will definitely be taking part uh there's a number of german bishops that'll be there um yeah and it's if you read the actual document, the Instrumentum Laboris, um, the first like two or three chapters are on the the nature of the Amazon region as being this kind of indigenous, uh, as as being this kind of like a uh, the Garden of Eden of of the Amazon, and it has all this ecological 
uh, beauty and that those people are really close to God in a way and all this really kind of this notion of ecological conversion, which has never existed before, but it's, it's kind of a strange that's, idea. That's very strange. Do you believe yeah. that? No. No. Uh, well, you well, asked me pretty bluntly, but yeah, I, ecological I mean, conversion, it kind of fits in the same, the same way as Pope Francis's um, Laudato Si on, you know, the, the church and the environment. Um, and so these first few chapters are talking about the environment there and, you know, all these different types of things. But they're basically, the, the fear is that they're going to use this synod and use this, uh, this area as a justification to try out married clergy, to try out married priests, and use it in the Amazon and basically justify it by saying, look, the people have their indigenous cultures, they have this thing. We're not going to try and push a European model. This is actually from the document. We're not going to try and push a European model on the Amazon people. It's going to be an Amazon church with an Amazon face. Right, but that degrades the overall universal principle of the Catholic Church and the role of the priests as not being a married person, and 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 you, what was the other? There was the married, the married women diaconate, women diaconate. That you can't. Okay, so in my opinion, you cannot base that just because of it's. Oh, it's their region. It's you know their kind of. It's their area, their type of culture. That goes against the principles of of the universal Catholic Church. Right. Just because it's in South America doesn't mean it it cannot follow the uh the European model, right? That's right. Yeah. So why how did this how did this exactly come about? Do you know what kind of what really perpetrated this in in those countries? Was it their culture that they were thinking, "Oh, why can't we why can't we have women in in or um um priests that are married or why can't we have women diaconates do you know exactly what perpetrated that so there's quite a few you could say quite a few different culprits i mean you could look at the uh you could go all the way back to the redefinition of what a priest is and the post conciliar documents um the the emphasis of minister instead of priest so the idea that the priest is just a minister of the word, he's a minister of the Eucharist, and uh, a reduction of the notion of sacrifice in the Mass. So you could go back to those things. and um, But, or you could just look, um, there's another document that, so you have the Instrumentum Laboris, which is the working document for the council. There was also another uh, smaller council of theologians and um, liberation theology, which is... Um, Definitely, it's basically liberation theology has been all over South America, but led by the Jesuits in a lot of places too. It's basically Marxism baptized. Um, it's kind of the, the simplest way to put it. Um, the liberation theology has this idea. It kind of substitutes salvation for um, going against corrupt systems. Uh, it calls Mary like the mother of the revolution, like these type of things. Mm. And uh, anyways, a, a group of the liberation theologians they met for and they made a document called towards the pan-amazonian synod challenges and contributions from latin america and the caribbean this is in uh bogota colombia and um 
this document that came out of there, it was referred to in the Instructum Laboris as being an essential, like, preparatory thing. This meeting of these these liberation theologians. Um, and uh, LifeSite News, originally, you can, you can look up their article on it. Um, they title it, Radical Liberation Theologians Push for Overthrow of Catholic Doctrine at Amazon Synod. Um, and they, they say that... Um, LifeSite has learned that of the 28 contributors to the text of the Bogota document, four have exercised key roles at the Pan-Amazon Synod's pre-Synodal Council, and two of them are key authors of the Synod's working document. Um, so basically, this document that came out of Bogota, Colombia, in April, it goes along with the Instructum Laboris, and even some of them are were on the council that made the preparatory document, and uh, four of them are doing key roles in this the synod that's coming up now in this document this goes further than the instructum laboris the official preparatory document the other one's like a it's like a movement towards it's kind of like a supporting one they go full out and um the actual text is only available in spanish but um i i've been translating a little bit of that's it that's legit i mean so listen to this quote we have the convic conviction that the ordination of women to the diaconate and the hands of women and the local church of the Amazon will be a sign that the church effectively wants to rescue the dignity of women, recognize their multiple ministries, and give a new face to the ordained ministry. It's on page 113. Read that whole thing one more time. You could read it in Spanish too. Tenemos la cabeza. <laughs> no. So we have the conviction that the ordination of women to the diaconate in the hands of women in the local church of the Amazon will be a sign that the church effectively wants to rescue the dignity of women, recognize their multiple dia diaconi, which is their ministries, and give a new face to the ordained ministry. The dignity of women. So if you're wanting to look this up, this is in uh, Hacia el Sinoda Pan Panamazonica. Um, so movement, a document towards the Pan-Amazonian Synod. And like I was saying, this is not the Instructum Laboris, which is the working document, but this is another document produced by liberation theologians, some of them who are working in the Synod, published in Colombia this April. And, um, and so they're pretty straightforward about what they want, which is women deacons. They say it just in the document. Um, I'm sorry. I I have to. I have <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, butt in, please. Like. I have to talk about the line that it said the dignity of women. Okay, this is a problem because by that saying that it's degrading the dignity of women, in my opinion. And I'll tell you why. Man and woman, we all have our. We have different roles, and some and you know some we have the same roles in certain things, but a lot of times we have different roles. God appointed man to be the priest. God, Jesus was a man. He was a male. He was a priest. Handed it down through the, you know, the apostles to be teachers. And women have also a very specific role. And a lot of the times it's to be a mother, to take care of a child. Mary, the mother of God, took care of Jesus. Okay, a lot of times we forget her maternal role. But women being diaconates that that's not that it's not in accordance with the church and that's not in accordance with catholic teaching and that's just not how it should be that's that has nothing to do with the dignity of women we both have plenty of dignity you know why why would you base that towards the dignity of women that doesn't make sense to me that 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 shouldn't if you're going to talk don't base it off of that because 
you're kind of in a sense degrading the dignity of women. And it's been like this for hundreds of years. So, I mean, I don't understand. Do you understand it? Why that specific dignity of women is in there? Here's more of what they say. If this is their more sure. of their justification, I'll definitely get to my reply. But sure. listen to this as well. So I, this is translating from the Spanish. There's been no official English translation. This is the Google Translate version, but <laughs> it's pretty accurate. We rely on the restoration of the female diagonal. We say restoration because for centuries the church was served by women deacons, duly ordained and who performed of differentiated way the same task as deacons men, or men deacons, sorry. We warn, however, that all anachronism is avoided, anachronism, sorry. It must be more a recreation than a reproduction, recreation than a reproduction of the past. All forms of patriarchalism should also be set aside as deacons will have the same rights that deacons as other deacons, and obviously perform their ministry in communion in relation with priest, although with freedom and autonomy. It will also be necessary to avoid standardization of the deacons, and also other ministers of the indigenous culture should embody and express values and styles of those cultures. <laughs> so they are making the assertion that they are really restoring the female diaconate, that it was present in the early church, which it was not, <laughs> in fact, they were never, they were never ordained. So they we did have, ordained. so we have very, very few examples of this, but we do know that there was a, what was called, so this is something that people don't really know about, well, the church in general now is what was called for, for a long time, the minor orders of the church. So in 1971, Paul VI released a document that uh, basically took away the minor orders and reduced them to ministries. And so there was no no necessity of like progressing to the, the holy orders. And the minor orders, always in the Latin rite, were uh, like were only allowed for men most of the time. But early on in the church, they allowed some of the minor orders to be done by women. That was early, early in the church, not the progression, not the development of doctrine later. Some of those minor orders inc included lector, acolyte, porter, exorcist, and a few others. And uh, all of these were meant to be, they weren't holy orders, but they were progressions to holy orders, or they were supposed to be there for the benefit of the holy orders. In 1971, those were abolished and replaced with ministries. So the acolyte was the altar server, the lector was the one who read, um, the porter was the one who opened the door and shut the door and made it for there in the church. That was a minor order. So in the early church, we have very few examples, but it was present where, um, oh, in the subdiaconate. And so women were some, and this is in very rare cases, were subdeacons, but they were never true deacons in the holy orders sense of it. Because all holy orders, because there are, there's a uh, uh, indelible mark put on the soul with holy orders, and it's a major sacrament, not a sacramental, like minor orders, that was never allowed for women. And so what they're saying is a restoration of the female diaconate is just, it's untenable. It's, it's not, it's not well, true. It's inaccurate because it's not true. That's right. So why, why then would, why would they, first of all, why would they lie about it? I mean, I guess it's just for political. Perhaps they don't think they're lying about it. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Oh, well here, uh, there's two, uh, NGOs that are behind this as well. Um, I forget exactly their names, but the NGOs are behind it as well. So they definitely have a reason for trying to push women uh, 
women diaconate. And like I was saying, the, the, the difficulty is this, this notion of synodality is where they call us in and they say, we're going to just do this for the Amazon. And then they try out something revolutionary in the church. And then they just say, well, let's just try it for everywhere. Like that's the, that's a real fear. That's a real fear. Um, you know, and prominent cardinals have spoken out against this. Cardinal Brandmuller called the Instrumentum Laboris in this Bogato, um, this document we're referring to, the Bogato uh, document, as being heretical. Cardinal Seurat, I believe it was just today on September 5th, that he commented that he, that the idea of female diaconate cannot be considered and women priests cannot be considered in the Amazon Synod. So two prominent cardinals are pretty, I mean, they, they thought it was willing to make a clear reply. And this is something that's going under Pope Francis's um, uh, oversight. Is you it know, under his supervision? It's under his supervision. And there's two prominent cardinals that are speaking out concerned about this. So okay. it's not like this is coming out of left field. Like we know that this could potentially happen October 6th. Why would Pope Francis even consider that? Because he has the authority to cast down the meeting, right? I mean, th this is a meeting coming to the Vatican, right? And and he's going to be in Rome. There. It's in Rome. Why am I, am I missing something? Doesn't he have the authority to just say no to this? Or is there he, other organizations here he that does. are that are work that that he doesn't have control over? He does have the authority to, um, but yeah, we'll see. You know, that's what we pray for. But um, it's it's pretty clear that this is a possibility. Otherwise, these two cardinals wouldn't be coming out and saying this, and, and people wouldn't be concerned about these documents. And, um, you know, Francis was very much, he was, he's from Argentina. He understands what he's doing with the Amazon. And um, yeah, we pray that it comes out Catholic and not heretical. So I really that's do about all I can say on that. I really do agree on the statement of being heretical because we've seen heresies in the past before in the Catholic Church. Um, one with St. Athanasius, who basically saved the Catholic Church with all the uh, bishops that were falling under the, I forget exactly what, what it was called, that God was, can, can you explain that a little bit more? Because that's important too. Yeah, yeah, the Arian heresy, right. which was a, um, yeah, a really pernicious heresy that basically said that Christ is not God, he's just the highest of created creatures. Uh, so yeah, and there was a period of time where nearly 80% of bishops were uh, Arian and they had to call the Council of Nicaea, and they rejected it, and they finally got it straight again. But there was a period of time where it seemed like the whole church was in heresy. And uh, at least the hierarchy, obviously. The church and her purity can never be heretical. But um, in, in eternity and even, you know, in her fundamental, uh, she is holy. She's one holy Catholic and apostolic. But, um, yeah, and this is the, the thing that the, the popes have always spoke against uh, going before the council which is the error of modernism, which is the, the as uh, Pius X says, it's the synthesis of all heresy is modernism. And one of the key tenets of modernism is this kind of global humanism, which is this idea that, um, that humanity is really all there is, that the gospel is more of a kind of social thing. Um, it takes away the notion of priesthood and of sacrifice. It... Um, it reduces everything. It doesn't admit that Christ is truly king. He doesn't really reign over the church. The Pope isn't actually the vicar of Christ. Um, the it's 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 a free for all and it's a humanism. And we're going and also one of the, the most pernicious things uh, post conciliar that came out was the ecumenical movement and uh, the kind of ill effects of that, which was 
basically telling everybody that they're fine as they are, meaning Protestants should remain Protestants, Catholics should remain Catholics, atheists should remain atheists, the Amazonian people should remain tribal. We shouldn't try and push Catholicism on them. We dare, dare we, you know, try and convert them. Um, unfortunately, people have taken the ecumenical movement and really shaped it into a global humanism where everyone just kind of gets along in dialogues, which is never the, the notion of the church. The church seeks to convert the nations. And converting requires real, uh, you know, it's not, we're trying not, it's not physical conflict, but it does require a kind of, you know, when you preach the faith and the gospel, you're right. telling people they have sins and they need to convert and they must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Yep. Boniface VIII. All human creatures must be subject to the Roman pontiff for salvation. Like, just there it is. There it is. That's what it is. Dogmatically defined. And um, dogma. We we have to be working for Christ and His Church, and we cannot be compromising. He who denies me before men, I will deny before my heavenly Father and His angels. And so, when we try and compromise and say, "Well, Christ isn't," you know, you don't need you don't need to believe in Christ. You don't need to believe in the church. You don't need to be subject to the Roman Pontiff. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to receive the Eucharist. We're denying Christ. The ecumenical movement it it has to it has to realize it's conversion. We're preaching conversion, and it's not just a conversion of heart where people feel like you know they feel better about themselves. It has to be a conversion to Christ and His Church. And anything other than that is really a uh, it's the era of modernism. It's it's this pernicious type of humanism. So we have to be on on watch for that. It's almost like we're getting into this state of comfort. You know. What yeah, I'm comfort is value. Comfort and and um. And that's a problem because I know a lot of times as Catholics, we have to go out of our comfort zone to do things that are for the Catholic Church. You know, it's it's not easy. You know, we're, I mean, in the most simplest sense, we're probably the most persecuted religion uh, because we're the ones that are the, the true faith. And we have to, you know, con and it's our duty to convert people um, all, all in the right time. But it just blows me away that we have got to this point and I, I, I just feel like the end is coming. I'm, I'm really serious. I know it sounds crazy and it sounds crazy to me too, but it, I mean, at a time you will least expect. Okay. What do you think? I mean, it just seems to me that this whole situation is just, is crazy because, because it, number one, it's defying church teaching. Number two, you're degrading women by doing this and it's just it's it just seems like a disgrace i mean i mean we're already in enough trouble already in the world and to now try to rearrange church structure with at the mass like to put a different sex as as or to you know for the diaconate and to make uh make priests can be married i mean that's that's crazy is it not crazy that this is happening? I, mean, I just don't get it. You know, it, it just seems to me that it's just, you know, sometimes I get down and I think it's just all going down the hole. And, and there's the hope of saying, you know, the church has been here before, but it seems like right now more than others, we're in a lot of crisis. I mean, everything from the church, you know, pre-sex scandals, abuse within the church, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Catholics, faithful Catholics do not like Pope Francis. And I think one thing we talked about also was the the death penalty, where he 
permitted it in a he permitted it right in a way based off of human dignity. He denied or, it. He, he denied he denied it on based off of human dignity. So there's good things and there's bad things, but you know, to me, it seems right. Like right now, it seems like the bad things are just like there's a lot of them coming. I don't mean to be negative anyway. I want to be positive, but it just seems very difficult right now with everything we're going through, and to to inject culture into this is is dangerous. I mean, you can't just you can't just do this because you say it's their culture. You know, in in Central America and Southern America, those places are. Catholic countries. You look at professional sports players in baseball, in soccer, in football, all other places. A lot of those, especially the sport of soccer, they come from South America. I mean, look at Argentina, Brazil, all those places, Jamaica. There's so many Catholic players from there. You look, you're watching the game on television, you know they're Catholic. You know, you know what I'm saying? I wonder how they feel, professional sports players on this. I'll never know, probably, but it. it we have to be faithful and we have to keep moving, even though it's, it's tough. And, you know, it, it's a it's a touchy topic, but it's something that really has to be addressed because I find this is a real problem. I remember the first time you told me about it. Uh, I, I think we were talking in, in our in my height um, and we were talking about it and or maybe it was before, but I was shocked. I was kind of more shocked than anything that it, it it's kind of coming to this. Does that not shock you a little bit that we want to allow m- priest to be married and we want to i can understand deacons can be married right so that's actually is that actually is another but that's another topic but before vatican II, no okay. after vatican II, yes okay but um if you want we can go down that for a little bit yeah let's talk but it's, about it's it. worth yeah. talking about um so yeah holy orders so when you're when you receive that indelible mark with this holy orders and the diaconate and its fulfillment in the priesthood and then the Episcopal consecration, which is um, merely being over an overseer, a successor to the apostles, rather than a new ordination of the priesthood. Um, the idea has always been that um, even for basically deacons weren't really in use in the Roman Rite for quite a long time. Uh, the diaconate had kind of fallen out of use, and it was for this reason because in the East, where they did have married priests and They've had a lot of problems with it, but they've ha- they've allowed it, and it's from early custom. The Roman Rite has never, but the Eastern Rites have. Well, the rule is that a man, if he's a priest, must be continent 24 hours before consecrating the Eucharist. And so that means no relations the day before. And, um, and so that was one of the reasons why they didn't have daily masses in the East, in fact, because... You'd have to be continent every day. I mean, if it's 24 hours, you consecrate on, you know, noon. You got to be, you know, continent until noon the next day. So it's basically impossible. So in the Roman Rite, because of that, because the priest has to prepare in that way, it was, you know, and from, you know, I'm not saying it's just that, but that's why in the East, they don't have daily mass and these type of things. But in in the West, we never allowed married clergy, never allowed that because... That's the more perfect union with with uh, becoming Christ, because who is celibate and you know, and the priest is married to the church. His whole life is for the church, and his hands are to consecrate and to offer the sacrifice of Calvary, to offer the sacrifice of the Mass. This is the appointed role of the priest, and he gets to touch the Eucharist. And the diaconate is this progression unto the priesthood for service and ministry, but. Um, 
uh, the diaconate kind of fell out of use because it was, you know, you move forward to the priesthood because there's never this idea of a married diaconate. Now, uh, after Vatican II, there was these documents that came out that wanted to restore the diaconate. But uh, so according to the traditional notion, obviously a deacon as well has to be 24 hours. He has to be continent before mass, before participating in mass. Now, that was pre-conciliar. That was pre-Vatican Council. Uh, no mention of that was in the post-conciliar documents, and so it was the allowance of a married diaconate where they're not living as brother and sister, um, because even when, let's say, Peter and Paul and these other people, or maybe not Paul, Peter, and the other apostles who had wives, they lived as brother and sister for the rest of their life, and they never had relations after that. And so, for the diaconate, like you didn't ordain someone to the diaconate who wasn't eventually going to become a priest in the Roman Rite. Now, after the council, they started to allow for married deacons who they gave no law concerning uh, relations, you know, the day before the Eucharist. Are you following me here mm-hmm. on this? Yep. Yeah, yep. it's kind of difficult to follow, but it's difficult, but I understand it. Right. So, in, in brief, they, allow, they started to allow for married deacons who, even if they were going to serve Mass, could have relations the day before. So they're not living as brother and sister. Okay. So anyways, that was, you know, that's a whole discussion. Was that right to do or not right to do? Uh, I know a lot of great deacons who are married and okay, but is that doing great glory to the holy orders? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's a discussion maybe that's for a another question. time. I have no but, idea why. But in the same vein, people, that's the argument for priesthood as well is on that similar grounds. It's like, look, well, the deacons can do it. It's really, it's a, it's an attack of the sanctity of the mass. That's really what, that's what, really what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, there's good arguments to be made and I may fall on this side of it's not befitting to the sanctity of the mass to have a married diaconate that's not living in continence that's serving at the altar. But let's go to the priesthood. He is offering the mass. And so there's, there's no doubt he, uh, in order to offer the Mass perfectly as Christ offered it in this celibate way, as instituted by the institutions of the Apostles and the Holy Pontiffs of the Roman Rite, going all the way back to our Lord, the married priesthood is utterly untenable, and it's it shouldn't be introduced in the Roman Rite. And it's been introduced in the Eastern Rite, and you know they keep a certain amount of rules to it, but it hasn't worked super well for them. And we can you just look at them. I mean, it's going to introduce... Just beyond the theological issues it's going to introduce for married priesthood, it's going to introduce so many other type of difficulties. Okay, well, now they have a family. Okay, well, if they're not going to contracept, if they're actually going to be Catholic, they're going to have some kids. All right, now the church has to pay for those kids and for their upbringing and their first car and their second car that they're going to necessarily have and their, you know, college fund. And like, now there's going to be, and then also, is the priest going to be fully attentive to the needs of the parish or is he going to be attentive to the, uh, you know, his wife and to his kids, obviously, you know, and the parish basically becomes his job and not the, the, the fullness of Christ in the priesthood. If you start allowing for this married priesthood, um, and, and for that reason, it's just that it's on the table is it's an attack on the mass. It's attack on the nature of the priesthood itself. Um, that's such a good point. Cause that's, uh, I, that's just really what it comes down to is, you know, the priest is the is the guy who directs the mass. I mean, he's basically he offers he, the mass. he offers the mass, and he's the person uh, you know up there on the altar. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate one, but you know it. 
boy, it's some dangerous stuff. I mean, you really are kind of reshaping the mass in a way, and it's just it's it's crazy. It's legit stuff to to be worried about. And to address the women diaconate, which is another right. thing. Um, yeah. yeah, that they're pushing. The idea it's it's okay if the uh, you know if the married priesthood's an attack on the nature of priesthood and on the mass, the the, the female diaconate's an attack on Christ the person because right. you're ultimately saying there's point. no reason why God couldn't have become a woman. Right. That's of a, a really man. good point. And um, then you just you completely misunderstand Christ and Our Lady because Our Lady is the one to whom the angel Gabriel appeared and to whom God fashioned to be his mother. And she is what it means to be a woman. And Christ is what it means to be a man. And to try and confuse those is to completely miss Mary and is to completely miss Christ. And to have women be in these these sacerdotal realms, I mean, it breaks with not only all the traditions of the church and with Christ and all the sacraments and the, the apostles and everything else and all the theologians of the, the great theologians of the church, you're, you're even messing with like even natural man never appointed, you know, women for, for, for priests and for priesthood. It was the, the, the men who offer sacrifice. You go to the old Testament before men are the ones who offer sacrifice because they're offering on behalf as patriarchs because it's this whole notion of hierarchy that there's this hierarchical ordering that God chooses to work through because it is in the nature of man to be social. Christ has chosen to establish his church under Peter as the foundation and as the head of the apostles. And from Peter flow all the graces. And so from the Supreme Pontiff, we have, he is the, Christ is the head of the church and his vicar on earth is the Pope, is Pope Francis today. And the bishops that are underneath him and the priest, and then the laity. And so all of it is a hierarchical ordering from the child in the family has his father and his mother who are the, the intermediaries between him. Then he has the local parish, which the father of the parish, the priest, is the intermediary there, the mediator, then the bishop, and then it goes all the way to the pope, and it goes to Christ, because Christ is the one who started the pope, uh, the papacy and the church and keeps it into being, and it's still reigning. And so you're going to destroy the notion of hierarchy. You're going to destroy the notion of mediation if you start trying to put women into holy orders because it's, uh, it's, it's the same. It's an attack on the family too because the family is also hierarchically ordered. The, the man is the primacy in the order of, of, of leadership and of, and of guiding the family as a father, and the mother is primary in the, in the realm of love and of nurturing and caring. And so you, you're going to confuse so many things. If they try and push women diaconate, it's, it's, it's messing with the whole order. It's messing with the whole order. You're messing with everything. The faith is one of those things. You can't, you can't just start saying, well, I'm going to push my own theology here and I'll push my own theology over here. I'll push what I want, my own, you know, liberation theology here. You're going to mess with the whole thing. It's too complex. You're going to lose Christ. You're going to lose Christ. You're going to lose the hierarchy. You're going to lose the Pope. So yeah, I mean, it's, we, we have to, we have to, uh, yeah, be aware of these things. And I, I urge everyone who's listening to pray a rosary about this. Pray a rosary for the Synod, um, that it'll go well, that none of these things that we're talking about will come to fruition. And um, that, uh, you know, Christ is, is ruling the church. He knows what he wants. And we pray for the Pope. Uh, he is our Pope. And we give loving 
uh, obedience and submission to him as the Holy Roman Pontiff, the Vicar of Christ on earth. And uh, yeah, we pray for him and pray for the church that uh, Christ will reign and that Our Lady will uh, bring all that Christ wishes about through her intercession. Beautiful. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. All right, and we're back on WFRSCC 88.3 Franciscan Effect. Okay, in this segment, Alex, we are going to talk about a very important topic, which is the Mass. Uh, The 22nd session of the Council of Trent and the Ottaviani intervention. Um, Just a stat to start, which is very, very frightening. Um, The Pew Research certainly uh, recently did a study that said that only 30% of Catholics, um, just a third of them, believe that the body and blood of Christ is really the body and blood and just striking just striking I mean, I mean that's it strikes right at your heart as a Catholic 30 percent I mean I, I don't have any words for that so, let, so let's dive right in so let's talk about the the 22nd session of the Council of Trent Nataviani intervention sure just to hop into it I mean in August August 5th this year um, the Pew Research Center did a poll of Catholics and found that only one-third, this is the headline, just one-third of U.S. Catholics agree with their church, the Eucharist is body and blood of Christ. Um, in fact, nearly 7 in 10 Catholics, 69%, say that they personally believe that during Catholic Mass, the bread and wine used in communion are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Just one-third of Catholics say they believe that during Catholic Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. I mean, we, I mean, we should be in tears about this. We should be in Eucharistic adoration all night in reparation for this. I mean, what have we done as a country and what have we done as a church that we have gotten to this low point? It's just striking. And, and in fact, this has gotten a lot of, um, a lot of commentary in the Catholic world, um, uh, different people commenting on on what it is, and so it's it's really sad. It's really sad. But maybe we'll do briefly. What is the mass, and what actually is it, and um, what is the Eucharist? Um, so a good place that not a lot of people refer to, but is is direct and it's clear, is the Council of Trent, and specifically the twenty second session of the Council of Trent, where it defines what the mass is, how do we understand the mass. And what is the Eucharist, uh, ultimately? And so this is how it begins, that, um, that Jesus Christ, it was necessary that he, as priest, should consummate the, the final sacrifice. He, therefore, our God, this quote, and Lord, though he was about to offer himself once on the altar of the cross unto God the Father by means of the death, his death, there to operate an eternal redemption. Nevertheless, because that his priesthood was not to be extinguished by his death in the Last Supper, on the night in which he was betrayed, that he might leave to his own beloved spouse, the church, a visible sacrifice, such as man requires, whereby that bloody sacrifice, once to be accomplished on the cross, may be represented, and the memory thereof remain until the end of the world, and its salutary virtue be applied to the remission of those sins which we daily commit. He commanded his apostles and their successors in the priesthood to offer the sacrifice even as the Catholic Church has always understood and taught. So he, de- and sorry, I missed one part. He delivered his, to be received, his, he delivered his own body and blood to be received by his apostles, whom he then constituted priest of the New Testament. So 
here we say he, they're directly saying, and this is in you know the 1500s language where one sentence is like the whole paragraph, you know, but <laughs> that Christ had to offer this sacrifice and the sacrifice on the cross for the redemption of all mankind. And in order that his priesthood may remain, he gave his body and blood to his apostles and commanded them in the priesthood to continue to offer his one sacrifice. And it then goes in and says that um, we have a precedent for this in the ancient Passover and that Christ instituted the new Passover to wit himself to be immolated. Immolated means to be sacrificed under visible signs by the church through priest in memory of his own passage from the world unto the father. When by the effusion of his own blood, he redeemed us and delivered us from the power of darkness and brought us into his kingdom. And uh, this is the consummation and perfection of all sacrifices. Was that one sacrifice and the continuation of that one sacrifice by, by priest. And I'll, now they go to define, so having defined that, they go to define what is the sacrifice of the mass. And for as much as in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ is contained and immolated, sacrificed in an unbloody manner who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. Unbelievable. So it goes straight out and says, this divine sacrifice, which we celebrated every single mass, the same Christ is contained and sacrificed in an unbloody manner who once died in a bloody manner. The wow. manner alone of bloody versus unbloody is the difference. Unbelievable. So the same sacrifice, every single mass is Calvary. It is the sacrifice of Calvary. It isn't just a remembrance of it. The Council of Trent, as it teaches, that the same Christ is contained and sacrificed on the altar. Just amazing. And so every priest in persona Christi offers Christ to the Father in the Mass, the same sacrifice. The only difference is bloody versus unbloody. Just amazing. So what do the Protestants say? You know, they say this is a, um, you know, whenever they celebrate the Lord's Supper, they say it's just a memory. It's not an act of sacrifice. For the, the Mass, the Mass is the sacrifice. The priest acts in persona Christi to offer Christ to the Father. This Holy Synod teaches that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Propitiatory, fancy words. It's for, um, for a sacrifice for the benefit of the people propitiatory, and that by means thereof this is effected, that we obtain mercy, that we find grace and seasonable aid if we dry nigh unto God, contrite and penitent with a sincere heart and upright faith with fear and reverence. So we get the benefits of Calvary at every Mass in this special way that Christ is instituted in the sacrifice. The fruits indeed, yeah, let's see, for the Lord appeased by the oblation thereof, and so, so the God pleased by the offering of Christ and granting the grace of get, grace and gift of penitence forgives even heinous crimes and sins for the victim is one and the same, the same now offering by the ministry of priest who then once offered himself on the cross, the manner alone of offering being different. The manner alone, meaning how it's conducted. Wow. It says the victim is one and the same Christ. The only difference is now it's being done through the ministry of the priest who once Christ himself offered himself on the cross. Poetic. <laughs> yeah, poetic and beautiful, right? Insane. That is the beauty of the mass. And uh, I'll, I'll just finish up with this and then there's other parts to go to, but we can comment on it. Because yeah, for sure. This is the last thing you say, and this is chapter two. 
The fruits indeed of which sacrifice of that bloody one to wit are received most plentifully through this blood, unbloody one. So you receive the graces of Calvary most perfectly through the mass. Because it is, it is Calvary. That's what it is. See, this is the Catholic understanding. You receive the benefits. So thinking about, for Protestants, they think, okay, well, Calvary was way back then. And we think about it and we ask Christ to apply it to we us. remember The it. Catholics receive that sacrifice at every mass. We are a Calvary people because every mass is Calvary. The fruits indeed of which oblation of that bloody one to wit are received most plentifully through this unbloody one. So far is this unbloody sacrifice from derogating in any way that former bloody sacrifice. So it's saying it's not, in no way is it in competition, right? Just because we're now offering Christ to the Father doesn't mean it's in competition with the one sacrifice. Wherefore, not only for the sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those who are departed in Christ and who are not as yet fully purified, it is rightly offered agreeable to a tradition of the apostles. So we even offer this not only for ourselves, for our own sins, punishments, pains, and satisfactions and necessities. So meaning the sacrifice of the mass isn't only offered for that, which is Calvary. It's also offered for the souls in purgatory, going back all the way to the apostles. So yeah, just just amazing. And it's the focus is what? It is sacrifice. And so what is the primary sense of the mass? It is the sacrifice of Calvary that we receive right? And Christ is truly present and offered to the Father. Yeah. Any thoughts about that? Immediately? Wow. I mean, that's insane. Because that, it's it's just incredible to think that this is the, this is the real actual sacrifice that, at, at, that is at every Mass. I mean, that itself is amazing. And it's, it's like we're revisiting that moment every time. And just that alone, because you and I have been to the Holy Land. We've been to the area where the place where Jesus died. And me just thinking about that brings that back, that vision back. And I was just, I was blown away at how unbelievable it was when we were there. And it's legit every time. I mean, think about how many thousands of masses are celebrate throughout the world in a day. Millions. Absolutely unbelievable because each time it's there. That's just what it is. It's there. Calvary's there. The Calvary is there. It's unbloody in the actual, in the way, in the way we conduct it. But the, well, I should, I should specify it's, it's the sacrifice was a bloody sacrifice that Jesus offered, but it's not like we said, bloody in that moment. Like we see it, like there's not, you know, you know what I'm saying? Hmm. But it, it amazes me that, like like you mentioned, the Protestants and how they, they just think of it as a distant memory. And that in itself sounds like a heresy because, I mean, if you think about it, it kind of is because it, it's degrading the sacrifice. It's like they're saying they don't believe that Jesus died for our sins. And that's not the real, you know, body and blood of Christ. So, you know, God, he, he Jesus did that for us. And that's, that's the honor that we give him every time that we go to mass, that's the sacrifice. Any thoughts? I mean, every mass you go to is Calvary. And what, what a glory to the church that, you know, Calvary is made present there. And, uh, you know, in the old rite, um, the, when you meet a priest, you always kiss his hands. 
actually when you first meet him because his hands have been made to offer the sacrifice. They've been consecrated. Uh, Catherine of Siena, actually, uh, she had a vision of hell and she said she knew which ones were priests that were in hell because their hands were on fire. Wow. I mean, that just goes to show you that their hands are now offering the same sacrifice that Christ offered. And um, that's the primary sense of the Mass is this, this notion of sacrifice. Obviously, real presence, the, the real presence of Christ is, a, is absolutely necessary. You can't get that wrong. But in fact, remember, this is the Council of Trent is against the Protestant Reformation. What is the number one thing they're going against is the Protestant notion that the Mass is not a sacrifice. It's not the sacrifice of Calvary. Most people read it as though Trent's replying to real presence. And, and we uh, often focus on, is Jesus truly present in the Eucharist, which is a necessary part, but people forget it's the sacrifice of Calvary. That's what we always call it, the holy sacrifice of Mass. We don't call it the time when we call Jesus into the bread. That's not it. If you if you think that the Mass, so we're going to get to the anathemas of the second, uh, sorry, the 22nd session of the Council of Trent. They anathematize anybody who says that the, the Mass is not truly a sacrifice, but is only us calling Jesus into bread. You know, like the priest calls down God and says, you know, get into this bread so we can eat you. That's not it. The primary sense is the sacrifice of Calvary. Obviously, you need the real presence in order to have a true sacrifice. Otherwise, it's not a true sacrifice. Otherwise, it's, just, you know, what is it if you don't have Christ in the real presence? Right. So, um, it's something that we really need to, we really need to reinvigorate in the church is this notion that the mass is sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of Calvary. And, uh, and what a glory to the priesthood. I mean, what a glory to the priesthood that they get to offer Christ to the Father. Um, just amazing. So we'll move on a little bit further where they, in chapter four, um, where they talk about the canon of the mass, which is what we would call the Eucharistic prayers. And whereas it beseemeth the holy things be administered in a holy manner, and of all things holy things, this sacrifice is the most holy, to that end, that it might be worthily and reverently offered and received. The Catholic Church instituted many years ago the sacred canon, so pure from every error, that nothing is contained therein which is not in the highest degree savor of a certain holiness and piety, and raise up unto God the minds of those that offer. For it is composed out of the very words of the Lord, the traditions of the apostles, and the pious institutions also of holy pontiffs. So this is chapter four. The canon of the mass is the what we would now call the Eucharistic prayer. But it's the prayers that the priest says privately, alone, where he is speaking to Christ and he is offering Christ to the Father. It's those prayers that surround it. Uh, so after the Sanctus, 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 after the Holy, 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 and we all kneel, Right? Because now we're entering into the canon of the Mass. And as the Council of Trent says, that the canon of the Mass, the Church has instituted many years ago this sacred canon, so pure from every error. There's no error to be contained in it. It's all the way, it's furthest away from heresy. It's the true profession of the faith in the canon. That nothing is contained therein that does not, in the highest degree, savor of a certain holiness and piety and raise up unto God the minds of those that offer. So this is the one, what we would call the Roman canon that was always said. Um, after Vatican II, three or four more Eucharistic prayers were added. Um, but before that, before here in the Council of Trent, it was just the one Roman canon. Um, many people take difficulty with the fact that they 
they instituted more Eucharistic prayers. Uh, specifically, pointed people have pointed to the second Eucharistic prayer, which is uh, very, very brief. And also the kind of ambiguity that you end up finding. Uh, you know, they take out a lot of notions of sacrifice in the new Eucharistic prayers of the post-conciliar documents. You can look in the 1969 General Instruction on the Roman Missal, uh, where they don't really focus on uh, this notion of sacrifice. But as we see in Trent, the canon of the Mass, the Eucharistic prayer, was established for to preserve unity of the sacrifice and of what we believe. Also in chapter 5, they say that the solemn ceremonies, and whereas such is the nature of man, that without external helps he cannot easily be raised to the meditation of divine things, therefore as Holy Mother Church instituted certain rites, to wit that certain things be pronounced in the Mass in a low and others in a louder tone, she has likewise employed ceremonies such as mystic benedictions, lights, incense, vestments, and many other things of this kind, derived from an apostolic discipline and tradition, whereby both the majesty of so great a sacrifice might be recommended and the minds of the faithful be excited by those visible signs of religion and piety to the contemplation of those most sublime things which are hidden in the sacrifice. So they say all the external means that the church institutes, like making the sign of the cross and the, the way that the church is shaped and the uh, solemn hymns and the vestments, the Roman vestments, the square Roman vestments, the, uh, all, the incense, the, the lights, the mystic benedictions, the, that the fact that as always was done before uh, the mass of Paul VI in 1969, the Roman canon, the part where the priest is speaking alone, that was always done in a low voice to where you can't hear it because that's the most private part of Mass where the right. priest himself is offering it to God. And so after the council, they changed that, unfortunately. And But here, as Council of Trent says, this is something that Holy Mother Church has instituted that it's not necessary for you to hear what the priest is saying at the Eucharistic prayer because he's offering the sacrifice to Christ. And this is like his private moment. <laughs> this is when he is literally offering Calvary. And so he's speaking directly to God, just as, just as Christ, when he offered himself on, in, on Calvary, he was only John and Mary were there. And, um, you know, who was there to hear his, his Christ to God, his offerings to God, um, just him and God alone. And so, you know, the priest makes that present once again, when only he is speaking in a low tone. They also talk about, um, uh, the mass being celebrated in the vernacular instead of in Latin. In chapter 8, they say, On not celebrating the Mass everywhere in the vulgar tongue, the mysteries of the Mass to be explained to the people. Although the Mass contains great instruction for the faithful people, nevertheless it has not seemed expedient to the fathers that it should be everywhere celebrated in the vulgar tongue. Wherefore, the ancient usage of each church and the rite approved by the Holy Roman Church, the mother and mistress of all churches, being in each place retained. The Holy Synod charges pastors and all who have the cure of souls that they frequently during the celebration of Mass, expound either by themselves or others some portion of those things which are read at Mass, and that along with the rest they explain some mystery of this holy sacrifice, especially on the Lord's Days and festivals. So there's two parts here. First of all, the Council of Trent says, we don't think it's proper right now to make all Masses being said in like, you know, English and Spanish and German and Portuguese and Italian and all these other things, because we want to preserve the unity of Latin. And it would be chaos to have to translate the, the, all the prayers and everything. And, and you could introduce error because if you translate something, you could translate it differently in this particular language than right. that. And that's important. It's really important. Mm -hmm. And finally, they say, 
make sure you do a homily is basically it. Yeah. Because even at that time, there there were certain masses that never had any homilies. Just imagine if it was just mass, no homily, and no reading at all. Because, you know, the primary focus is the mass, but this Holy Synod charges the pastors, look, at least have a small part where you're just telling them the readings, because it's in Latin, obviously, and, uh, and, and talk about what the mass is, you know, so they're not, it's not just the mass, but take a second, you know, take some time to do a homily and other stuff. And, uh, yeah. And then we come to the canons. This is where, so what do we garner from this? The sacrifice sacrifice is primary. It's primary in the council of Trent. And, uh, we've really lost that. Now listen to the canons. This is something we've lost, which is the, uh, I wish we did it now in the Vatican too. I mean, if they had, uh, canons, Basically, it means if you believe this, let you be anathema, meaning you're outside the church. Excommunicated. Excommunicated. First canon. If anyone says that in the mass, a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, or that to be offered is nothing else but that Christ has given us to eat, let him be anathema. Wow. That's big. It's pretty powerful. That's really powerful. So meaning you do not believe what the church believes. If you do not say that the mass is the true sacrifice... And you do not believe what the church believes if you think the mass is only that Christ has given us to eat. These canons are still in effect. They're made by the Council of Trent, right? Right. Um, so, I mean, how many people think that, you know, the mass is just Christ has given us to eat? I mean, that's that's kind of the principal heresy we see in the Pew Research poll. Um, they basically say, uh, let me see if I can find it again. Yeah, they say that, Seven out of ten Catholics say that during the Catholic Mass, the bread and wine used in communion are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This isn't even like asking them if they think it's a true sacrifice. This is just asking them, do you think it's the true, is it's truly Christ in the yeah, Mass? Just that it's most simplest. Yeah, and, and that's not even like, would they even think it's sacrifice? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or even for the people who believe that the the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus, would they truly believe that the mass is a true and propitiatory sacrifice? We got to reclaim this. We got to reclaim what is the, the church believes of the mass. Um, listen to this council, or sorry, canon. If anyone says that the sacrifice of the mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it profits him only who receives. Now we're getting really specific. And that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead, for sins, pain, satisfactions, and other necessities, let him be anathema. A lot of powerful hitting things. If you say that the sacrifice of Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, so meaning we go to Mass just to give thanks for what Christ did way back then, but it's not the actual sacrifice. You don't believe what the, what the church believes. Um, or if you just say that the Mass is a bare commemoration, Meaning like we're all coming together to like say, oh yeah, Christ did something for us way back then. But what we're doing now is we're sharing bread. You know, we're sharing Christ now. I've actually been to a, I think it was a, my sister took me. It was a, I don't know if it was Episcopal or it was, I don't know, it was some sort of, what's the word? Non, I forget. Heretical? Yeah, (laughs) I know, right? And, And at the service, they had like, bread a big loaf of bread and they dip it and give it to you and, and i know and and i didn't know any better right so i mean i was i was young but i saw it and i was you know i was just i experienced it that's that's what i experienced and that is 
that's some serious stuff. I mean, you're either in or you're out. I mean, I mean, it, this is this is the true sacrifice, and the way it's conducted is the way that it's done. Anyways, keep going. Yeah, make sure you don't go back to uh, those. Yeah, because it's a, it's a. Yeah, I mean, they're mocking the mass. I mean, they're not saying thinking it's a true sacrifice. Right. It's 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 really bad. So, I mean, I mean, this canon's super clear too. Anyone who's trying to say, look, mass is just a massive Thanksgiving. We're just thanking God for what He did on the cross a long time ago. If you just say that, you're not believing what the church really believes. That's ultimately a Protestant heresy, and the Council of Trent specifically says it. We have to reclaim the notion of the sacrifice. So after they reclaim that in the canons, then they move into what the church has instituted surrounding the, the mass that um, add to it. So this is canon six. If anyone says that the canon of the mass contains errors and is therefore to be abrogated, let it be anathema. So if you think that the Roman canon, which was the thing that the priest said privately, the, the thing that consecrates Christ, Consecrate or that makes the sacrifice, right? The word surrounding it that the church has instituted. If you say that that has errors in it, you're not Catholic. <laughs> or Ooh. if you say that it's supposed to be abrogated, meaning we, we don't need to say the Roman canon anymore. You're not believing what the church believes. So this has got some people riled up because the after Vatican II, they instituted three or four more Eucharistic prayers, more canons, as, as it's traditionally been called. So is that an abrogation of the Roman canon? Well, no, not technically, but it does leave us in a sticky situation because it's like, well, we know that that one doesn't contain any errors. What was the necessity to add three more? Hmm. So That's an interesting I'll question. let the air hang on that. Um, Canon seven. If anyone says that the ceremonies, vestments, and outward signs, which the Catholic Church makes use of in the celebration of mass are incentives to impiety rather than offices of pieties, let them be anathema. Okay, break that down a little bit. Okay. What, what does that mean, in incentives of piety? Incentives impiety. of piety means lead you closer to holy things. Hol okay, holiness. Yeah. And the other part was... And, or if you say that it, like, if you say that the Roman vestments, the, the square Roman vestments, and the prayers at the foot of the altar, and Troy Bola Dei, and the um, the incense, and if you say the Gregorian chant, I mean, if you say the shape of the churches, if you say of all these things are... Really, they're leading us away from true faith. They're not leading us to true faith. Then you're not believing what the church believes because she believes that the things that she has instituted as being leading to piety is truly leading to true and, and, and righteous piety. The church didn't come up with the mass or sorry, come up with, didn't institute all these things surrounding the mass because she thought it'd be fun. She instituted it because it leads to faith. It leads to supernatural faith in what's going on. So when you enter into mass, you know this is the sacrifice of Calvary. All the outward signs lead to that. And it's really important because if we, if you lose the outward signs, you're eventually going to lose the belief. Because people are going to be like, you know, if you think that the mass is just a sharing at a table, you're losing the belief. You're losing the belief in the sacrifice. And uh, so all of these things that the church has instituted are for piety. They're not for impiety. If anyone says that Mass is wherein the priest alone communicates sacramentally, receives the Eucharist, are unlawful and are therefore to be abrogated, let him be anathema. So a Mass in which only the priest receives the sacrifice is still effectual for the people because it's the sacrifice. The Council says the people are encouraged and should, if they're in a state of grace, receive the Eucharist. But 
the where the priest only sacramentally communes, it's still effectual as a sacrifice for all the people. The last part, this is the last canon in the Council of Trent that we could really discuss, get into it. If anyone says that the rite of the Roman Church, according to which a part of the canon and the words of consecration are pronounced in a low tone, is to be condemned, or that the Mass ought to be celebrated in the vulgar tongue only, or water ought to be mixed or that water ought not to be mixed with the wine that is offered in the chalice, for that is contrary to the institution of Christ, let him be anathema. So I don't know if you caught that one, but if you say that the part of the canon in the words of consecration are meant to say in a loud voice, according to this last canon, canon 9 of the Council of Trent of the 22nd session, you are to be anathema, because the church has rightly instituted that those words are to be pronounced in a low tone. Which leaves us in a kind of weird place. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Huh. So you know what they're talking about with the canon, right? That's the part where the priest himself is 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 only speaking. But well, unfortunately, in the mass, I mean, we have him hooked up to a loudspeaker. I know. <laughs> and, and the new way of doing mass from 1969. Right. But don't we have high and low masses also? Not in the new rite of mass. And not in the new. Okay, because there's well, there's because. So for our listeners, the Mass pretty much remained the same. It was solidified in the Council of Trent, but the Mass as it's always been done, the Roman Rite, goes all the way back to St. Gregory the Great and even back to Peter himself. And um, today they would call that the extraordinary form, um, according to some more in Pontificum, Pope Benedict release, that all priests are able to do the extraordinary form. That was the way the Mass had always been done uh, before 1969 and the release of the new Missal of Paul VI. Um, sometimes uh, disparagingly called the Novus Ordo. Um, but the way that the Mass has been done, I mean, we even have records that the Dominus Vobiscum, the Lord be with you, right, that we say at Mass. In the original Latin, Dominus Vobiscum. That's right. That goes back all the way to the Apostles. It goes back to Peter himself, the Dominus Vobiscum. In fact, we have records that this would be the, the apostolic greeting, the greeting, the Dominus Vobiscum, et cum spiritu tuo. And... Um, and so the Mass basically remained the same. The Council of Trent solidified it and uh, all the way up until 1969, where uh, after Vatican II uh, and the principles laid down by Sacrosanctum Concilium, the uh, first document of the Second Vatican Council, under Concilium, which was the council appointed by Pope Paul VI, headed by Annibale Bugnini and a group of theologians, also a group of six Protestant theologians, mind you, uh, they released in 1969 the new Roman Missal, the Missal of Paul VI, along with a new general instruction on the Roman Missal, and that's the Mass that is called the ordinary form of the Roman Rite at this point in time. Um, however, there's some difficulties with regards to these canons. Um, uh, you, you, so people have pointed to the fact that the, the way we do Mass now emphasizes the common table of the church that we enter into a common table rather than sacrifice. So they point to things such as um, mass facing the people, which was never really the practice of the Roman rite. Which is what a lot of churches do now. That's like, right. Not, That's kind of a common practice. But yeah. in Steubenville, not at St. Pete's though. The church or the, the priest is usually faced towards the... The, uh, the altar. Ad the altar. orientum yeah, is what yeah. they call it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... That it presents it presents a difficulty, right? Because we know what the Mass is, according to the Council of Trent. We know what the Mass is. It is the sacrifice of Calvary. And um, uh, however, the way that they implemented the liturgy afterwards, they 
changed it. They they um, they emphasize this notion of table. That it's the Lord's Supper and it's the table. And so because of that, they move the altar from being the ad orientum. It's the, the, the direction everyone's facing because it's the sacrifice. And they de-emphasize altar and re-emphasize table. Table communion. Um, mass facing the people. Uh, mass in uh, English or in whatever language you're, you, you're in. Uh, so against the canon which says that uh, mass is only to be celebrated in the vulgar tongue. It's supposed to be celebrated in Latin, traditionally. Um, and uh, also that that the mass is, instead of a sacrifice, it's, it's even if you do believe real presence, the real presence is primary, but not sacrifice, meaning the priest consecrate, meaning that the emphasis is that the priest consecrates the Eucharist. That's actually, it's a necessary part, the main part is the sacrifice. That's the main part, as according to the Council of Trent. Right. And so people, even if you're retaining belief in the real presence, you're because it's facing the people and communion on the hand, communion standing, which was never allowed before 1971 with the adult, people point to those as decreasing belief in the real presence. Um, if you go into the general instruction for the Roman Missal and the preparatory document for that, uh, released in the mid-60s, Paul VI basically pulled the bishops and said, what do you think about communion in the hand? Which is one of the debate topics we're considering. So what do you think about communion in the hand? Do you think that will lead to loss of belief? And it was something like 60% of the bishops said, yes, please do not institute communion on the hand because we think it'll lead to loss of belief. Um, this was in one of the concilium documents. I believe it was released in 1966. I believe the Second Vatican Council was still going on when yep. they released it. Yep. And so they pulled them and they said no. <laughs> However, there was no official papal document that said, we like communion on the hand. Rather, it was a series of indults starting in 71 with Belgium, where they basically said, oh, you guys want to do communion on the hand? We'll allow it. And now it's become the norm, you know. Um, I've even been to, to masses where the priest would not give me the Eucharist on the tongue. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was really? really, yeah, it was really, I, I still remember it. And, um, was that in the United States? Or? Yeah, I was in SoCal. Oh I was gosh. in San Diego. Anyways, yeah, so communion on the hand, people point to that as, as losing respect for the sacrament. Eucharistic ministers, which were always supposed to be, and still the official title is extraordinary extraordinary yeah. <laughs> unfortunately they've become ordinary ministers ordinary minister. the ordinary ministers of holy communion are who the priests and sometimes the deacons right and um but it's become the ordinary practice to have like 20 or something usually women who are giving the eucharist and um people say well our churches are big we have a lot of parishes okay okay but is that de-emphasizing the First of all, is it de-emphasizing the unique mediation of the priesthood? Probably. Because now it's saying anyone can touch the Eucharist, right? I, I can touch the, I can hold the Eucharist in my hands. Fair. Are my hands consecrated? No, no, they're not. Whose hands are consecrated? The priest. In fact, that's the reason, yeah, exactly. One priest described it to me as, that's why I gave up being able to touch a wife is to touch the Eucharist, <laughs> right? That's the true notion of sacrifice. That's what it is, man. Your hands are thereby consecrated. And so that's why, you know, you kiss the hands of the priest. And Catherine Siena had the vision of the person, uh, you know, the priest in hell who their hands are on fire right. as, as priest. Yep. Like, man, they get to touch the Eucharist, right? 
That was all by a series of indults, never, never encouraged. Like there was no document that came out of the Vatican that said like, hey, this is a great idea. I'd really like you guys to start doing communion on the hand. It was just like, hey, we're the bishops of the United States. Let us do communion on the hand. And the Pope said, okay. It's it's really it's really tricky. I mean, that's very tricky. Look, very in depth. I mean, I mean, it's kind of sour fruits. If we're looking at this Pew Research study, one third of Catholics believe this. How can that be? How is that? And I under and the reason why that is is just is just what we all what we just talked about. That's what it was. But I just can't believe that that that's that's an absolute that's an absolute disgrace. Is what it is. Can can you even fathom that? I mean, are you kidding? Are we kidding? Are we kidding ourselves here in the United States and the world that only is it just in the just in the United States worldwide? Worldwide? Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! That's terrible. Um, I mean, this has been going on for years. It has been going on for years. And um, what kind of downfall is? I mean, that is the most the sac the mass is the sacrifice, right? So that's the entirety of our of the mass and and our religion is Jesus sacrificed his life for us. And to say only a third of Catholics believe that in the entire world, sorry, in the United States, but in, yes. In the United States, that I don't even uh, that's a testament to that is the power of Satan. That's really what it is. That's that is a power that Satan has gradually increased over his years um, as an evildoer in the world. Um, and that is, that is something that's very, very serious. You, you can't... <clears throat> and the thing is, too, is in society today, nothing's perfect. Nobody's perfect. People have their own personal beliefs and, and, and ways of doing things. But to... to for that to be exposed, that the mass in itself saying that people, a third of the people in the United States believe that that's the body and blood of Christ, only a third believe that, that is Satan at work. And I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm not trying to be, you know, a, a l looking down on things, but we got to call it as it is, man. I mean, how do we fix that? How do you fix something like that? Right. A lot of people point to um yeah to these changes that we were we were speaking of as being one of the culprits obviously we have the modern age um that's a big part of it a lot of people are leaving faith they're leaving it for scientific atheisms materialism you know just neglect of belief a lot of people are pointing to the fact that look we made quite widespread sweeping liturgical changes in 1969 and, and following and um you know we've seen the decline in the priesthood Quite rapidly. In fact, um, the request for laicizations, which is where a priest asked the Pope to become a layman, it has to be approved by the Pope. Uh, the year after the the new mass was instituted, normally, you know, the Pope gets only you know a few out of all the parishes in the world of priests asking to be laicized. But there's accounts of Paul VI after the new mass was instituted that um, all these liturgical, sweeping liturgical changes, right, in the church that. They were, you know, and he'd have to sign each individual document. There's accounts that the the files and the letters of laicization that came into Paul VI after the new mass was instituted, they were just piles and stacks 
of priests asking to be laicized. Can you and define, it was to such a point. Can you define to the, our listeners what that means? Laicized? So laicized, so a priest is a priest forever. If he receives the, the, the ordination, he is a priest forever. However, the Pope, only with the Pope's approval, not the local bishop, may a priest be laicized. That means become a lay person in the world and he's no longer to actively do his functions as priest, although the indelible character is always there. So he's terminated his priestly power. That's right. And so, and if a priest is going to ask the Pope for that, it has to go through the Pope and the Pope has the power to say no. He has, he has the power to say whatever. But um, after the new mass was instituted and all these liturgical changes, um, there were so many requests for laicization. Paul VI, there's accounts of him. He just had to put his hand on the stack of it and just say, I grant them all. Jeez. And, um, you know, we've seen the constant decline in uh, in the priesthood. Um, it's It's been a really, parishes are closing. And Seminaries um, are closing. Yeah, the priests have been the hardest hit. The priests have been the hardest, hardest hit. Hardest hit. That's right. I mean, uh, even in my, my hometown, San Diego, there's a uh, minor seminary at the University of San Diego. And, uh, and back in the day, in the, in the 50s, I remember walking through there and, and one of the priests was saying, yeah, that's, that used to be the dorm where all the, the seminarians stayed. And there was like 150 in the heyday. It's like five now, today. Jeez, that's... And um, it's just really sad because, and, and so, and so, and so. And people point to the liturgical changes as being one of the culprits. There's obviously lots of culprits, but um, one of them is communion on the hand. People say if you give people communion on the hand instead of on the tongue, you are de-emphasizing the nature of Christ in the sacrament. Because there's something about receiving the Eucharist on your knees on the tongue that just shows genuine reverence. In fact, in the documents of Concilium, they discuss that uh, when communion is received on the tongue kneeling, there's no further sign of reverence needed. But if you're going to receive standing, what they say, if you're going to receive standing, then you must bow before you receive it. Now, that already goes to show you which is the more reverential, even from the people who are changing it. They're like, duh, it's more reverential to receive kneeling on your tongue. Right. Okay, what's less reverential? Standing on in your hands, right? Right. And uh, here's another thing that people don't realize. The stealing of hosts, the stealing of yes. the Eucharist happens Very when people good. receive on the hand. Very good point. And what, what happens? You receive on the hand, you walk over, you put it in your pocket. Yeah. Like black masses... What do you what do you think? They're receiving it it's on the tongue. How they thrive? Yeah, exactly. That's how they thrive. If you if it touches your tongue and it's in your mouth and it's on your it hits saliva, like it's really hard to salvage it. If you're one of these satanic people or somebody else who wants to desecrate the Eucharist, it's really hard. You give it on the hand, it's almost like it's gone. I've seen people who in mass, I, I don't know if they. So I, this is in cathedrals in in Europe, and they take it on the hand, and then they just start walking with it. And I get out of line, and I say, "You have to receive." Yeah, you have to do you that. You have to because have what to is that? that? That's Christ. Yeah, that is Christ. Yeah. And the fact that we started to allow communion on the hand, it really should be considered again and saying, "Why did we allow this?" And we well, need to we need to take a sober look at ourselves, sober look in the mirror and say, what are we as a church doing to encourage belief in the real presence of Christ? Because where do people learn about the Eucharist? Like, where do people learn about the church and what the church does? At mass. That's where they come every week. So no amount of catechism reading outside of the, of, of the, of the mass, you know, there's only so much of that we can do for the laity, but at every mass, by our actions, we can inform them of the reality of the sacrament. So we need to take a sober look and say, you know, is is this proper to the sacrament to allow people to receive God standing in their hands? 
um, it's a conversation we need to have. And um, people point to other ones, uh, the abolishment of Latin. Um, there's, there's a unity to Latin. There's a unity to um, the, you know, the universality of everyone's using the same language and also a sacredness to it. There's a, there's a sacredness beyond the vulgar tongue. So it's just called the vulgar tongue because we, you know, we're, we're chatting. We're not speaking in Latin, although right. I wish we were. That'd, <laughs> that'd be, be pretty that'd happy. Be really cool. We could, <laughs> I wish yeah. it was conversational. Sorry, Dr. Schaefer, but. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I wish we were conversationally Latin. Um, unfortunately, I'm not. But um, there was a unity to to the Roman Rite because we all, all we all spoke in Latin. Um, things like communion rails, um, ad orientum, all these other things, you know, these play a role in what we believe. And uh, I think we as a church, uh, you know, the hierarchy are the ones who, who do these changes. And so we need to, as laity, here's what we can do in our personal life. Receive the Eucharist reverently, as reverently as possible. On your knees, on the tongue, if you can. And, um, and uh, you know, as reverently as possible at whatever parish you go to, receive it reverently. Say to Christ in the Mass, I truly believe this is the sacrifice of Calvary, and I truly believe that I am receiving you. Do not go to the Eucharist and receive the Eucharist if you are under the state of mortal sin. It is an imperative. You will eat and drink judgment upon yourself if you receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin. If you're in a state of mortal sin, make it to confession. It's the ultimate sin, blasphemy is what it, it is. It is. It is. It's, it's um, yeah, we have to be wary because St. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon yourself. And if you do not believe that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist, do not receive him. And if you're in a state of mortal sin, do not receive him. And uh, prepare your heart and your mind. And when you receive the Eucharist, say to Christ, I truly believe this is your sacrifice and this is truly you in this Eucharist that I am receiving. And give him thanks. That's what we can personally do in our lives. And uh, as uh, the church, the hierarchy, they need to, to look into this. This is abysmal numbers. <laughs> this is abysmal. Imagine, you know, only, only three out of ten Catholics identify, who identify as Catholic believe this. We have done something very, very wrong and we need to look at it whether it's communion on the hands ad orientum altar rails something we got to return to tradition we got to return to traditional ways of piety belief yeah you know i was thinking so you think that all of these this unfaithfulness these staggering statistics you think it's all because of would you say that it's all because of of the multiple changes that have been made is that like what is that what we're saying really is because there's been so many changes and and like the canon or or just in, in church teaching that people are you know starting I don't know if they're starting to get worried or maybe people think that the church is too strict. Here's I've talked to people that used to be Catholics and I and I I we had a you know civil conversation and I was asking you know they just told me the response came and they told me, look, I just, it's just too, it's like, it's too many rules. It's like, it's rules. But what they don't understand is the beauty behind those, those laws that we have in our Catholic church. They don't understand the beauty behind it. You know, my sister got married and, and she used to be Catholic. Um, she went to a UC, you know, UC Santa Barbara, she lost her faith and uh, she got married. And I don't know how it works, like a civil marriage or you sign you sign the contract, and in the contract it already says if a divorce happens, that is already an invalid marriage, right there. Mm -hmm. Be because you're saying 
you're, you know, releasing the option of a divorce. And I took a Christian marriage class in Austria and it was, I was just, we went over, we went over all of this and, and it's insane, man. People, people don't understand how beautiful the faith is. If they did, they wouldn't have left in the fashion that they did. No. It's hard though. It's hard to understand it, but the only way to understand it is through faith, man. Go into the mass, receive the sacraments, be a holy person, confirmation, baptism, all those beautiful sacraments that they have. It all leads up together to our understanding of the faith. You know, and it's just sad to see so many people leaving and it just seems like we should never lose hope. That's the one thing and I truly believe that hope is one of the biggest weapons against evil. And I was thinking about this Sometimes I just like to talk to myself a lot of times. And I was, and I, and I was, I was in St. Louis uh, I was driving on the way over and uh, I stopped in St. Louis and I was just trying to formulate an argument for my, like just talking to myself about how hope is like one of the most dangerous weapons against Satan. I mean, and it's true because Satan doesn't want us to strive for anything. He wants us to be failures and hope allows us to strive for something. Yep. And uh, I was just thinking, man, if we can, if we can hope again, Maybe we can truly resolve this conflict of only 30% of people in the United States believing that it's the true body and blood of Christ. Maybe if we hope again, we can solve this. If we can get together as families, pray the rosary, strive for something. Man, if we can do that, that's power. Mm-hmm. That is power against Satan. Who The other night we were talking, the, one of the biggest people that Satan fears, Blessed oh, Mother, yeah. she... In depictions everywhere you see it, her she's stepping on Satan. Satan's just dying at her, at the at her feet. It's possible to do that. We can make a resurgence in the church, but we have to work at it, man. It's not going to come like just the snap of a finger. And for us to do that, we have our role to do. We go to mass and we be faithful for the sacraments. Just showing that to somebody. There's people lost all around the United States that don't know what to do. If you just you just bring them to mass. Just say, hey, take a shot. Come, come, you know, see the mass and, and, and what it's like. That changes somebody's life. That brings it to 31% instead of 30. You know, so it, we have to do our job. We have to be faithful Catholics. And it's hard to do. I mean, think about how scared the, the apostles were when, when Jesus, the night before, comes into the doors and says, peace be with you. First thing he says Peace be with you. And I think he said it what twice or three times or many mm-hmm. more. And they were still frightened, but man, it was a it was a thing of, of of security, man. You know, it's not it's not a joke. Nothing's a joke, man. It, it's serious stuff. I mean, like you said, the quote of "If you receive the body and blood of Christ in mortal sin, you're bringing judgment upon yourself." I mean that that's scary. You yeah. just think about that. That's scary stuff. But it's true, and I think we just have to face reality. I mean, that's that's just what it is. We got to strive. We got to hope. We got to face reality. But we got to do our part as faithful faithful Catholics. You know, we're not on this earth for forever. We're not here for forever. So why not make use for the time we have? You know, and and it's such a it's such a critical thing, man. I can't tell you. I mean, you know, I know. We go to mass and simple things, just like the podcast that we're doing right now, to bring the message out to people. Um, you know, we have to stay faithful. The reason why we're seeing all these people fall away from the church, a lot of it's, you know, like things we talked about before about the, you know, the priest sex scandals. And I can, 
I can honestly understand why a person would leave. I, I can see it. Yeah. it. It makes sense. It's not something that's like, oh, you know, you can't just leave because of that. It, it Logically, on a logical level, it makes sense that someone would leave the Catholic Church if he saw this terrible things going on for the person that distributes the Eucharist that's acting persona Christi. I can understand it, but at the same time, the principles are still there and the canon is still there and our church structure is still there. We need to move forward and we need to incorpor- incorporate these people into into our lives and into the church. We need to bring more people in and and bring those people back that we've lost because you know we're not here for forever and and that's our job is to is to evangelize to people. Just think about Franciscan University. How many kids come here because they want to come here? 99% of them probably because they want to come here. They want to evangelize. They want to engage in stuff like the Veritas Society. Bringing the message out to people so that they can see it. That's what we have to do. That's what the Veritas Society does in their debates. They talk about things. They engage students. And they want them to interact with each other so we can come to an understanding of what the heck is going on in our world today. You know, we start off with, you know, guns and we led to you know the amazon and and that and that crisis and now we're talking about you know all the changes that the church has made and and the the effects that it's had on people and it just comes to say that we have a job and we have to carry it out and and that's really all that it comes down to so um yeah that's 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 what it is any final thoughts alex live the faith the faith Never compromise on the truth. No. Nope. Keep your eyes on Christ. Pray your rosary. That's Pray a weapon. your rosary. Yeah. It is the weapon for the modern age. If you're uh this is Taylor Marshall, if you're not praying the rosary, you're not on the team. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and uh um, how it is. It's it's the weapon that Mary has that our Lord has chosen. Mary has chosen for us to uh, reclaim reclaim the beads. Yeah. Pray the rosary. Yeah. And um such a valuable weapon. And every time you go to Mass, think the Lord, thank the Lord for this sacrifice that he is now offering on your behalf and on the salvation of all mankind and receive the Eucharist in a state of, of grace. Do not receive it in a state of mortal sin. Go to confession, live the faith, live the faith. That's the message. And that will bring back the people that have left and that will let Christ reign. You are thereby letting Christ reign in yourself, in your family, and you're bringing about his kingdom in the world by doing that unbelievable and then that's what it comes down to is letting him come into our lives and and bringing that kingdom into the world because that's what we need these days man it's not a joke and and just like the statistics that the pew research did you know it it's what it is i mean i'm I'm sorry i hate to say that but it's our job we have our work cut out for us there's nothing there's never a point where we can't do something we can always do something and you know it, it just comes to show you know it's hard work, but it, it'll pay off if we can if we can do our job, if we can really evangelize and and bring the mission of Christ into the world. I mean, but to not lose hope because know that that there's always places that we can go that are are of refuge, a church and a church, you know, a, a Catholic school, priests. I, I just love talking to priests. I mean, that's great. I love going to confession, just having, you know, because they're there for us. Why not use it? You know go to confession but you know i talk with them and and some of them are shocked too i've asked some priests about the the sex scandals and they're just shocked Mm. 
we're get, we are given this authority as priests to distribute the Eucharist, to distribute Christ to the people that we that we um, that we bring together, and they're just shocked that some people would literally compromise that mm. through sexual relations with children. Mm. But anyways. Um, there's always things to do, always things to hope for, pray for, pray the rosary. Like that's such a valuable weapon, and and that's awesome that we were given that opportunity. So that's gonna wrap it up for this fir- first podcast of the year. Alex, thank you so much. We'll be back next week, and uh, keep listening to WFRSCC FranciscanEffect.com eighty eight point three. Check us out everywhere. We're not going anywhere. Bottom floor vegan. We'll be here. Any any last thoughts, Alex? Viva Cristo Rey. And uh, we'll be on air 6 to 8 p.m. Thursdays. All right. Perfect. Viva Cristo Rey. Viva you want to say uh, glory be to end us? Yeah. Glory be to the Father, the and Son, to the Son, and to the, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as, as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed night, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this edition of the Callan and Alex Show. If you want to follow us live, we go live at twitch.tv slash hingustringus. That's twitch.tv slash H-I-N-G-U-S-T-R-I-N-G-U-S. We go live every Thursday night from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time if you want to join in. We also release the podcast the Friday morning after on every podcast streaming platform. Thanks so much for listening. God bless everyone.